Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. And we're joined by our deputy web, web editor, Anoush Shikalian, who is fresh from Batley and Spen, which she'll be talking out with us later, but she's joining us for this section as well. Hello. What a treat for you, because we're going to talk <laughs> about Brexit. What else? Um, first of all, Stephen, I know that we're recording this just before the announcement of various committee chairs. Who doesn't love a select committee chair announcement? Who doesn't indeed? I am I am actually... Uh, this, this is quite an interesting set of ones, because whatever happens, it will tell us a couple of things. One of the dogs which hasn't barked and people feared might happen when you elected select committee chairs is that the government, government, governing party mm. uh, would deliberately vote for bad candidates in order to get easy scrutiny in order to get easy scrutiny okay so that but that hasn't worked out so let's take the home affairs select committee which i guess is the highest profile fight so i think everybody's seeing it as a fight between you said your morning newsletter which i urge people to subscribe to because of your excellent article about uh, football manager which we could probably talk about later but uh it's shaping up into a fight basically between yvette cooper who has inherited a kind of Brownite slate, such as it, uh, yeah, the that kind of the brownite machine to to the extent that it is still fighting fit, and that is actually one of the interesting plot lines of this, right? Is how she does will give us some idea of how effective that organisation still is. Um, versus Chukramuna, who's now become really the sort of standard bearer for what I would think of as kind of liberal. Uh, Labour, non-Corbyn Labour. Although he, I mean, he is already, I mean, I, was, I did a, a panel with him at Labour Party conference, you know, he's accepted that free movement is probably going to have to just be be junked. So he's not Mr, you know, kind of open to the world, uh, free markets, free borders. So those are the kind of top two in kind of, kind of contention. Then we also got a, a personal favourite of mine, Caroline Flint. I was going to say, don't, don't rule out Caroline Flint. He's a hostage to fortune there, seeing as our listeners will either be laughing to me or going, oh, how how far-sighted. Because because she's done this tax evasion stuff lately, she's had to work with a lot of Tory MPs. Tory MPs are where it is won and and lost. She's been a Home Office minister. She does impress a lot of Tory MPs. So it's possible that she could could surprise uh, one or two people. And, and is there anyone else who I've forgotten? Who Paul I've forgotten? Flynn. Ah, so Paul Flynn, who is a grandee, a veteran, 
She uh, and recently retired from at the age of I believe eighty one, doing two yeah. front bench jobs for the first time ever in uh, in Corbyn's kind of slightly hastily cobbled together candidate. Again, as you observed in the morning email, lots of people seem to have nominated him who I don't think will carry on through and, and vote for him yeah. because they don't remember August twenty fifteen and in the same deep scarring way that the rest <laughs> of us do. Well, I do find it kind of funny that both Kate. Well, one of the the interesting things is that two of the factions of the parliamentary Labour Party that are completely neglected in most commentary. One is Birmingham, right? The Birmingham MPs, despite having fairly different politics, tend to be quite pally and to vote as a bloc. The other is the old, which makes more sense. If you think about it, if you're the only person in the 87 intake still left, the only person in the 1992, the only person in the 90s, in the 1970 intake, you're going to pal around with your with your, your other old mates, right? And so the nominations for both Kate Hoey and, and Paul Flynn have come from two places. Odd elderly MPs. <laughs> I don't mean that as in... I mean as in ones who You mean doesn't... odds and sods rather than weird Yeah, I don't, I don't... Yeah, so some of them are strange, but there is no particular reason why, say, Jeffrey Robinson would nominate Former Paul owner Flynn. of the New Statesman. Yeah, they, they don't really share politics. Please blessings be upon him. What they've got in common is they've been in Parliament for a long time and a lot of their mates have retired or died. Okay, so you mentioned Kate Hoey, which ne- brings us then neatly onto the Brexit committee. So the runaway kind of favourite in terms of nominations and sort of block uh, support for that is, is Hilary Benn. However, I thought it was really interesting looking at people who nominated Kate Hoey. So Kate Hoey, Vauxhall MP, one of the few Labour leaders, Labour leavers. Um, there's still quite a lot of resentment in the party that she gave a cross-party gloss to the Leave campaign, right? When everyone pretty much, apart from her and Gisela Stewart and a couple of other people like sort of Frank Field and Dennis Skinner, they, you know, the, the PLP was overwhelmingly in favour of Remain. So I, st- I just think there are still some people who are kind of quite, still quite angry with her for getting on a boat with Nigel Farage. Yeah, although there is a slight double standard here in that most people are not angry with Gisela because people really like Gisela. She's hugely respected on both sides of the house, etc., etc. And a lot of Labour MPs have never liked Kate Hoey, right? Mm-hmm. They... They feel that she is, yeah. She she uh, she effectively endorsed Boris in two thousand and eight. She she did a very good job of not doing anything which broke the letter of Labour's rule book, but she pushed the spirit pretty damn hard. She gave it a really fascinating um, quote yesterday. I can't remember exactly what it was on, saying, "I've always been somebody who looks at the position um, evidence and then take a position. I don't take partisan positions." And I thought. Hang on a minute. What are you doing in the Labour Party then? Like yeah. that sort of, you've you've missed the point of not being an independent MP at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also Clive Lewis nominated her as well, which I find um, very tempting to see that as a kind of Doyle get you Hillary Byrne mm-hmm. kind of um, like a sort of sight about revenge for the for the the coup in the summer. Yeah, that that did feel slightly personal. I mean. That those are the votes that Kate will get. She will get the votes of Eurosceptics, diehard Eurosceptics. So obviously, you know, she will do better than many expect. It won't necessarily be a walkover. She'll get at least eighty votes, I guess. And she will also get the votes of uh, people who are incredibly loyal to the leader's office. If I were feeling inclined to troll our listeners, I might suggest that there was a somewhat of a commonality between Eurosceptics and loyalists and the Labour leader, but... Uh, <laughs> That's I'm... a cal- Take that back. No one can... No one loves Europe more than Jeremy 7.5 out of 10 Corbyn. <laughs> um, finally, you, the one that you, I know you're excited about, science and technology. It's a five-way between um, five, five Conservative MPs, which is... I mean, I don't think anyone knows how that's going to shake out. Um, is there any kind of factionalism involved in it? Is there anything that you can read into who actually wins? 
no, I just think, who's nicest, who they like most. It, I think particularly when it's it's sort of a five way and it's then who gets knocked out first and it's all going to be very weird. Um, I think it's mainly going to be an interesting guide as to who has mates and also who has done a good job of wooing the other parties. Well, while we're talking about committees, the other thing we must mention is cabinet committees, of which there are five. Uh, Theresa May is chairing four of them. David Cameron chaired two of them. The obvious piece of criminology to take from this, I think committees are a ripe subject for criminology, is that Theresa May, who was known at the Home Office as not being one of nature's delegators, is, again, keeping a very tight grip on things. I'm really surprised. There is a kind of... It feels like we're living in a slightly weird news drought. Um, I think Matt Chorley, in his rival to your uh, email... Sorry, sorry, I cheated on your email... Um, has pointed out that Jeremy Corbyn only makes it into one piece in the mail today. So the, the leader's office, um, the Labour leader's office is not pumping out stuff. At the same time, Theresa May's office is not pumping out stuff, which has a slightly weird feeling about all of this kind of... People really scratching around for things to say. Yeah, it definitely is a, a, a was a very thin uh, morning, um, which I think was more obvious in Redbox than it was in, in my email. <laughs> uh, but... Um, but um, Sassy. But, uh, but there is, a, there, there is a, a bit of a news drought. The problem, of course... For the opposition, as it is always the case for oppositions, is that unless you're having a fight among yourselves, or you have a large poll lead and people therefore look to every pronouncement you make as the words of the next Prime Minister, which we forget, even though at this stage Ed did have that advantage, um, you mostly get shut out. The government has gone very silent on lots of things, I think because they've realised that they have a tiny majority, mm. although that has got a bit bigger because they've successfully wooed some of the DUP to a point where you could now sort of plausibly say they start with a majority of 32. But, but that's the interesting thing is that they can, they, can, well, they can control to some extent the domestic stuff, but they can't control the fact this is a negotiation with two dozen other countries, right, and in, and the EU and all the people there. Is, I mean, it's been interesting to see... You know, um, the Republic of Ireland, for example, has been talking in very worried terms about how they're going to deal with this. You know, you've been hearing noises from MEPs and and um, and others in the EU about how worried they are about this. They can't kind of they can't con- they can only control what they can control, right? And I think this might be quite a bruising couple of months. Um, I think. Do you see more evidence for our early election thesis came up yesterday? Um, did it? Yeah, I'm sure it did. And I've oh, the Heathrow decision being kicked until 2017. So you can absolutely make sure that you get a much bigger majority next year and then you've got no problem with a couple of refuseniks who won't vote for it or giving people a, a, you know, a free vote on it. I don't know. I mean, I'd love to be able to read things into Heathrow being kicked into the long grass, but it's happened so many times now that I don't know like a if we can annual tradition. take anything from it at all. But it's a good example of um, why the government has been so quiet, actually. Um, grammar schools, although they were sort of forced to make a pronouncement on that because it was leaked, um, and Heathrow, just opens them up. They're, they're very vulnerable anyway because of the EU um, negotiations and because they've got so many dissenters on their own benches that when they try and announce something domestic, they're open to more, perhaps more dissent than they otherwise would be because you get people who are so angry with what they're doing in Europe that they're happy to speak out against the government on domestic issues as well. Mm, so maybe that's why. I mean, there is, we've got the autumn statement coming up on, I th- I've got to say, I think it's the 23rd of November, but I don't know why I've got that date. It is all the 24th, but it's it's actually semi in autumn this year. There's allegedly um, a white paper coming on prison reform, the long delayed one. Who knows what that will be um, if eventually will be left in it. Um, The NHS doesn't look like it's getting any more money. I mean, I think this is the thing is you can only kind of keep a lid on everything else for for so long. Um, Before we move on, and I'm... um, 
uh, I know we, we really want to talk about these by-elections. I just want to bring up Stephen, Championship Manager. Yep. Explain to us why it models Brexit better than politicians and commentators. Well, I think because they actually have worked, sat down and worked out what the three plausible models for Brexit are. Football Manager is a a game in which you are a football manager. You don't actually have to control the little men, and, and sadly, a lot of the time, it feels like they control you. Um, and they've realised, and although obviously mostly football manager skews uh, political developments, although they do take note of the visa requirements to control how likely your work permits are to fail, they have understood that. <laughs> See, I really love this. I gave up... I, so I gave up, as it was then, championship manager um, in 2003 when I was still playing the 97-98 season. And that was about the level of complexity that I was prepared to read. Like, how good is man at kicking ball? How good is man at heading ball? And now I hear there's all kinds of other stuff, like you have to like look at their nutritional information and yeah, kind of like what and, time they get to bed and, and you know, your actually out clubbing and, and, and all of that. There's, there is an awful lot of, uh, of, of complexity in it now. Um, but one of the things they have completely got is Brexit is, is our national project, Right. It is going to define politics, not just for the next two years, not yet for the next five years, but for all of our working lives. We will be reporting on or being shaped by or both the consequences of, 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 of this vote. And a lot of um, a lot of people, <laughs> oh, including God. people who voted Remain in the political class, still seem to have this bizarre idea that, yeah, oh, it'll be a bit gnarly. It'll be a bit like... Yeah, it'll be about- like two years. We'll chat about it, but then it's over, so yeah. it'll be done. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I don't. My also my worry is that it's going to get really nasty. I've written my column this week in the magazine about this sort of language of traitors and and um, like a lack of patriotism that why aren't you getting behind Brexit? And I just feel like it reminded me so strongly of um, the kind of language that we used about people who didn't get behind the Iraq War. Um, you know, there was a Daily Express article that said, you know, these, you know, these snakes. They use the word snakes. You know, they should who who don't get behind it should be locked up in the tower. Classic op-ed lines of our time. I'm going to start throwing that into everything. And anyone who doesn't agree with me on NHS reform should be thrown into the tower. But then I went back and I found a Sun front page about Charles Kennedy and the Lib Dems' opposition to the what, and they put him next to a picture of a cobra, and they said, you know, one of these is an unprincipled reptile that spits venom, and the other's a snake. Because, <laughs> you know, lol. But, you know, exactly that same kind of language, that if you're not on board with what the government wants to do, then, like, conflating the idea of supporting the government with support, like, with loving your country. And I think that's going to get really, really quite nasty. Added to which, all this stuff about the, the, the we're taking this pitiful number of refugees and even that has kind of provoked massive amounts of wailing and gnashing of teeth. Mm. Um, I think that this is going to be a very unpleasant couple of years. But we will return to this in a moment. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now Anusha Kalian joins us again to talk about by-elections. This is the... um, this is kind of the hostage to fortune special podcast. Having talked about the select committee chairs, which will all be out by the time people listen to us, anyone who's listening to us at the weekend will know the results. So there's two by-elections on Thursday. First is in Batley and Spen, where Joe Cox was murdered last year, the MP. As a sign of respect, um, Lib Dems, Conservatives and UKIP haven't run any candidates. Um, let's talk about that one first, because that's the one that you've you've been to. We'll talk about Whitney in a minute. 
what was it what was it like what was the mood in the constituency it was quite a muted um somber mood as you can imagine um although most people were very willing to talk about what had happened it wasn't as if they had sort of journalist fatigue or news fatigue which i thought might be um might be the case um but also there is a sense um among lots of the voters that i spoke to and even um some of the people on who had been out campaigning was that they wished that the main parties were running um their own candidates although it was it was a sign of uh, respect that they didn't now that it's come to the by election a few months later the voters do actually want someone to vote for who's not a labor candidate the majority of voters didn't vote for the Labour candidate for Joe Cox last time um, and so there's a lot of people who've, who are feeling a bit lost and a bit unrepresented. Um, a few people are going to be lending their votes to Tracy Braben who's the Labour candidate even though they're not traditional Labour voters because they like her, she's a local figure, she's well known, she's an actor who's been in Coronation Street and other soaps and um, also she was a friend of Joe Cox and there's a lot of respect for Joe Cox's work around there but there are people who wish that there was a Tory or um, a Lib Dem candidate to vote for because now the vacuum's been filled by some candidates from far-right fringe parties who have leapt on the opportunity to get a bit of publicity. Well, let's talk about this, because this was one of the things, I mean, you know, to peer behind the curtain a bit, I mean, we had a discussion in the office about going up to cover and and, and who, who we would like to cover this, because I think it's it's difficult when you know that you are going to cover people who, you know, some, they will be hostile towards journalists. And I mean, I remember, uh, you know, having to phone the BNP for comment on stuff and you just kind of get this like long diatribe about how all teachers are Marxists and you ought to be at home cooking cakes for your husband. Um, I mean, tell me a bit about some of these other parties that are running. Yeah, so it's um, mainly the... Uh, so UKIP has decided not to run, so it's it's parties to the right of UKIP, the BNP, the National Front, the English Democrats, and Liberty GB, which I think um, is another far-right one that I hadn't really heard yeah, that much I about. Think, um, during the fallout, because when Nick Griffin did uh, Question Time, uh, one of the things which annoyed people in the BNP was him laughing and joking with Bonnie Greer. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, people were annoyed that he was insufficiently racist, basically. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and uh, and I think I may be wrong, and I'm sure this is one of those things where one of our our, our academic listeners will 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 be able to correct me, and I will uh, do a parish notice in the next. But I think Liberty GB is one of the break-off organisations that came out of the feeling that he was being too chummy to to Bonnie Greer. Yeah, there are a few splinter groups and also independent candidates who are also from the far right. So there's someone who's changed his name by deed poll to Corbyn Anti so that it comes up as Anti Corbyn on the ballot paper. And he's someone who is an English Democrats member, but he's not getting behind the English Democrats candidate he's running on his own. So, you know, I mean, they're sort of fringe people. They're not not big figures and it doesn't seem like they've got any significant support in the area. Although the area has had a bit of um, far right flirting in the past. So Dewsbury is a town nearby and that's had EDL marches and that's had um, BNP councillors and it's uh, and Batley and Spen actually has had a few BNP councillors about a decade ago as well and Nick Griffin actually went up to the constituency to visit it and he called that area the jewel in the BNP's crown or something like that so that's something that is in the memories of local people but I didn't pick up very much anti-immigrant sentiment at all actually when I was walking around and that might be because of the very unusual circumstances of the by-election. Um, yeah, I would have thought it's not, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where I think there'll be a certain repressive effect on people telling you that that's... Yeah, what, exactly. I'm make... sure people are a little bit um, more watchful of their words than they might be in constituencies nearby or with the same kind of demographics. It is really interesting. I mean, just as a general point about hard right and far right parties, that how 
thankfully prone to splintering they are much as parties on the far left um do i just just because i want to bring this in as a minor rant of my own um stephen wolf has now left ukip he's withdrawn his uh bid for leader i think ukip had a huge turnover you'll maybe know this stephen 25 whenever between the last whenever the last elections were um, ending in 2014 that parliamentary session about seven of them left and stood as and and sat as independents in the european party right yeah i mean they've always ukip have always had this problem and whenever they've had an electoral advance they've splintered they've splintered and started fighting among themselves of course they've had the biggest one hell of an yeah, electoral the, advance the biggest victory of you know, any political the biggest single victory i think of any political movement in, in in british politics probably since the suffragettes and they are probably going to to keel over completely but the weird thing about people like Stephen Wolfe is they actually only joined in 2011. They were kind of part of sort of the kind of second Farage era of more professional-looking people coming in. Uh, I mean... I mean, I think that's interesting in that when you look at the UKIP leadership contest now, you know, you've got people like, again, like Suzanne Evans is another example where you just think, well, you could probably be in the Tory party, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But whereas you've got, on the other hand, you've got... Um, David Coburn, the uh, MEP in Scotland, or you've got some of the people. I was on the Sunday Politics with a with a, a guy in a splendid waistcoat who's one of, another one of their MEPs. Um, Raheem Kassam, who may be familiar to some uh, listeners for his uh, time at Breitbart. It's always good to see someone in Breitbart get involved in politics. Literally, nothing bad ever happens when that happens. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I think it does. It is now kind of shaking back out to its more wilder fringes well, right? yeah. I, I'm surprised that you think that they're going to implode why do you think that? I, I think it's going to be the opposite. I mean I, I think one because I think they're going to continue fighting among themselves uh, whoever emerges as leader the second is they've got this big financial meteor coming into them which is the end of the European Parliament. The only place that they've ever been able to get elected has been uh, the MEPs because of its proportional nature. A lot of them are employed by by people. So the slight weirdness, if Suzanne Evans becomes leader, you'll have a situation in which the leader of the party, her paid job is being a parliamentary aide to Douglas Carswell, who we haven't slagged off for a while. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. say, Douglas Carswell, what a jeb end. Um, can i say that i can't i've got no hate left in my heart for douglas carson because it's all taken up by daniel hannon who i've become like he's all my anger over brexit has been distilled into one handy human daniel hannon shaped form with his tweets about elderberries and like how the battle of hastings was england's knackbar i just I i find him kind of compelling and horrifying at the same time but to, to to exactly to your point, I had a, I tried to attempted to start Twitter beef with Tanya Hannan saying you said that you wanted the British people to vote to sack you. They did. Why are you still there collecting your nine thousand euros a month, mate? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he deleted his tweet and then didn't reply, which was sad. But the same thing about Stephen Wolfe. So Stephen Wolfe has to stay there until twenty seventeen in order to be eligible for his golden parachute back out again. And this is a fascinating thing about yeah UKIP. No, you know, no one has has benefited more from the absurd mm. signing in rules and like, yeah. you know and, and massive amounts of expenses of the European Parliament than the UKIP and, and Aaron Banks who we profiled in the magazine last week a really brilliant piece you know put huge amounts of money into UKIP and is now quite willing to put them somewhere else I see UKIP a bit like Libya in that they the strong man oh, was go, well the strong man was or like you know the or, or Iraq you know the strong man was holding them together right and you might think you want to bring down the strong man but that does leave a power vacuum that is then filled by competing groups yeah I mean I think I don't think there are any Islamists in UKIP 
that's the important thing that I should say is different. But I, yeah. I see them more as a party on the up having growing pains than a party that's falling apart. Because I just think there's a huge chunk of voters now who won't go anywhere else but a party like UKIP. And I don't uh, know... No, I think that's exactly it. A party like UKIP, I'm just not convinced that UKIP... What is, what is the essence? What is the soul? Of, where is the power vested? You know, the, Labour's got the NEC, which will always kind of hold it together. But actually everyone in UKIP hates their NEC and mm-hmm. thinks that it's rigged against Nigel, who is the other kind of centre of gravity, right? Yeah, but I think there's a few quite, um, quite respected and um, sort of convincing local candidates who have done well in UKIP seats over the past few elections local elections and and the general election and i think they're not going to go away because they're the ones who are it's sort of like a grassroots up type thing um and as the country gets poorer and as people suffer more and as people realize that that problem isn't necessarily migrants and there's still going to be immigrants whether or not they're eastern european immigrants or non-eu migrants who are taking up the jobs in those areas which need jobs because that's where the migrants go they're either going to still have all of these people to blame or they're not going to understand why they're still worse off five, ten years after Brexit. And I don't know where that sort of dissatisfaction, that kind of vote is going to go unless it's to a party like UKIP. That, no, I or, agree. I think we all agree. Like, yeah. That's the thing. We all agree that there is space for a party like UKIP. I mean, like mm. I, I think it's probably an English nationalist party because UKIP okay. doesn't do very well in um, Scotland. Obviously, it doesn't run candidates in Northern Ireland. It's done... I mean, this It does is, very well in Wales. It does very well in Wales, despite Neil Hamilton being involved. Well, this <laughs> is... I, I think it might um, go into a zombie state because I think you're exactly right. There is. There's clearly a... Yeah, to you know, to to you know, burnish my Blairite credentials. Right? Things don't go bust if there's a market for them, right? Yeah, it's you know, it's why all of this will Labour die thing is nonsense, right? There's people want a left wing alternative to the Conservatives, uh, and so even if Labour dies, something like the Labour Party will emerge, which is capable of challenging the Conservatives. And as Wales has shown, you don't need to be for UKIP to be successful for it to take a lot of votes because yeah. exactly as you say, it's about what, what do they offer that no one else offers. As people get poorer, we know that that actually mostly does help the right, not the left. Uh, so you'd kind of expect them to survive and thrive. But if their major donor is giving money to someone else, and we forget that UKIP is really the, the Nigel and Gawain Towler show, mm. their head of comms, very polished operator, used to be a conservative Hugely respected by tele producers. Um, oh, I mean, that's the, one of yeah. the great UKIP stories mm. of our time. Any new party should take that lesson from them is that they would just, they would turn up to anything. They would always have their thing. They would always say the same thing they said on the phone. There would be no trouble. And they would say something, you know, that was that was distinctive and they would leave again. And this is something that, you know, actually I think parties like the Greens could probably learn from is that they just made being on TV. They were every TV producer's dream booking, right? Um, and they just and that meant that they got a lot more bookings. Yeah, and their press offices are really great, very accommodating. Um, you know, yeah, even, they, they're even, like, happy to give interviews to anyone. But all this the is the time, thing; they genuinely whether it's someone from the new states, they're happier to t- yeah. talk to us than sometimes the Labour leaders' office have been to exactly. all like to, to press on the left, which MPs is kind of as well. fascinating. And yeah. um, yeah. we must just quickly talk about Whitney, which I think is a really interesting constituency, David Cameron's old constituency. Thing I did not know about Whitney: fifty-four percent voted Remain. Yeah. So it is a rural Remain constituency, which there are not very many. Um, the big test I would contend there is the battle for second place, right? And um, whether or not we are going to see a hashtag Lib Dem surge. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, so the interesting thing is one of the unreported stories. This is uh, interesting use in a way that only Stephen Bush uses it, I'm afraid. But um, is the Lib Dems have been doing very well in places which meet the following criteria in the South, 
very affluent, conservative, voted Remain. Whitney, obviously, is all of those things. You would expect them to... If this, if this Remain surge, and there is some evidence in by-elections they are getting, is real, you would expect them to, to place second in Whitney. Hopefully we should expect- say that Labour came second in 2015 and they're running the same candidate. They are running the same candidate, but it was a very distant second. What it was really about is that, you know, they was yeah, and they they clearly worked it hard, but it was partly about the overall collapse in the in the in the Liberal vote, which went two ways. So you'd kind of expect the Lib Dems to, if things are going well, to be able to play second, perhaps even to have a very good second. It will tell us a lot about the success of their kind of. You could call it a 22% strategy. They want that a die hard. hard. anti-Brexit. Mm. I also think that they're really, they've thrown the kitchen sink at it in terms of campaigning, right? And that's another thing that's interesting is that they've been all kinds of, you know, Nick Clegg's been there, Paddy Ashdown's been there. Yeah, they've kind of made that by-election a story about them by doing all of that. So I don't know whether that, that could either work really well for them and people will be looking out for a Lib Dem surge or it could massively backfire and they will come third and it will it will represent... Um, the fact that they are, this this strategy isn't working. This. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, they really do have to have to place now. Um, the other element of all this is one: they thought they would be fighting a snap election, so they were they were all geared up. So they kind of thought, eh, might as well. The second is is uh, Heathrow, which we talked about briefly, um, which made for a by election in Richmond Park, which they held until twenty ten. It's also partly about, about effectively, they had this open beta for their by-election machine, which is one of many reasons why, if, if, if Zach Goldsmith uh, runs as an independent conservative, particularly if there is a conservative candidate... Did you is... perhaps write a, a blog on this? I did write a blog on this, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was then rendered redundant by Theresa May kicking that can down the road. Yeah, I then decided to like repurpose some of it and just publish it anyway. But yeah, I'm I'm feeling bitter about this, so I'm gonna. <laughs> but yeah, and and that is an, another element of it. Of course, it could turn out that we're all completely wrong, and by the time you're listening to this, the Lib Dems have come a humiliating fourth place. Mm. Oh, behind the Greens. Behind, yeah. the thing behind Bernie Steve, Sanders' Steve brother. and I have often discussed this, is that um, there is a tendency for people who watch politics closely like we do to overestimate the Lib Dems. Um, and actually, I think if it's you speak to anyone kind of, normal, they're like, oh, no. The Tim Henman <laughs> of politics, in a way, you just think they're kind of scrappy and they try really hard. And but This is the point that I sort of nicked from Anoush from my What I Got Wrong uh, last year. Because you made the point, whenever you wanted to impress like your non-political friends, you go, they go, oh, no one's going to vote for the Lib Dems. And you're just like, oh, actually... The team they're then. doing really well locally. Yeah. yeah it's like, what you don't understand is that, and it turned out, of course, that we were completely wrong. And then all of your like everyone's non political mates were like, No, no one is gonna vote for these guys were a hundred percent correct. But the question I guess is for them whether or not Brexit is their Iraq war mark two, right? Which is that they are just there are some people in the country who feel incredibly strongly about this and don't feel that and and, that, and this has now become the one thing that they're sufficiently angry about. And actually you know, you call it a protest vote if you, or whatever you want, but that will be the big that will, I think that but there's this is a truly a week of great Kremlinology and that this will be another um part of that thank you for joining us Anoush in our podcast um, bunker (laughs) and um, yeah hopefully have you back on soon a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.